Uh, Isaiah 15. I'd like to read the first four verses, then we'll pray and get right into our study this evening. The burden against Moab. Because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, he has gone up to the temple and Debon, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Madiba. In all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Eliela will, cut, will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Yahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. Shall we pray? Father, help us to come to a greater understanding of your word this evening. We pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Grant us, O God, your wisdom and grace. Our desire, Lord, is to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And since we know that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ is on every page of this Bible of ours, of the Word of God, of the Scriptures, we would pray that you will make clear, Lord, His hand in all of that which is taking place, not only that which has taken place in the past, but that which is to take place in the days to come. Grant us wisdom to understand that, that we may continue to live and to move and, and, and live our lives in such a way that reflects the love of Christ until the day of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in chapter 13, Isaiah began to prophesy burdens of judgments upon the Gentile nations, beginning with Babylon and Philistia. A new burden begins this 15th chapter, this time aimed at Moab, which is to the southeast of Israel. You can go back to one of your maps in your Bibles, and you'll find uh, either in the times of the kings, uh, uh, however your maps are labeled, and you can see exactly where Israel is, where Jerusalem is. If you look down a little bit southeast of there, you'll find the Dead Sea. And there on the Dead Sea, to the east of the Dead Sea, you'll find uh, Ammon above uh, Moab, and then underneath Moab you'll find Edom. And all of those kind of come into play <clears throat> in this particular prophecy that we're given. Now there seems to be a very different tone in the prophecy of Isaiah toward Moab, different than what we saw toward Babylon and toward Philistia. For the reason that the Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. So you go back all the way to the book of Genesis to see how this all comes about. We know that from Genesis 19, when Lot fled from Sodom, he had only his two daughters with him. If you remember Lot's wife, as they were leaving Sodom, uh, they were told not to look back, and she looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. And I'm always telling you, don't look back at the clock, because if you do, well... You know what happens. But, uh, okay. And tonight that may come into play here. So don't look back. <laughs> well, they thought that they were the only humans left after 
the destruction of Sodom. In other words, they thought they were the only ones alive after the destruction of Sodom. So what they, uh, they got their father drunk, as you know the story, and, and both became pregnant by their father, that is, the two daughters of Lot. And the Moabites and the Ammonites were the descendants of this incestuous relationship. Now, the Moabites were distantly related then to the Israelites, but at times they were bitter enemies of Israel. Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam the prophet in hopes that he would curse Israel. Uh, learned that uh, back uh, in our study of, of the Old Testament uh, as far as the, uh, the judges and in the times after the judges. Uh, and before the judges, I should say. Uh, Eglon, another king of Moab, oppressed Israel in the days of the judges. So uh, it was... Balaam, of course, before it was in the book of Numbers, as a matter of fact. And then Eglon is in the days of the judges. And it wasn't until the time of Saul and David that Israel established a solid control over Moab until later kings of Israel lost that firm grip and weren't able to dominate them. And they weren't a major country, you know. They weren't a major uh, uh, force or nation. But nonetheless, they lost grip. Of it, and mostly because the the uh, Israelite kings were were themselves not looking to God for their strength, not looking to God for their wisdom in those times. Uh, but God continued, you see, to have a concern for Moab. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter two, verse nine, and it says, "Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot." As a possession. So the very R that we mentioned earlier in our reading of uh, verse 1 of chapter 15 of Isaiah is mentioned here all the way back to the time of Moses when Moses himself is saying that God had spoken to his heart to not harass Moab and to not take their land. Now it also has to be pointed out that the greatest king of Israel, David, was one quarter Moabite. And who was that through? It was through his paternal grandmother, Ruth, who was a Moabite. It also helps to know that David, when he was a fugitive from Saul, entrusted his father and his mother to the king of Moab for protection. We see that. Uh, uh, well, we could look at that uh, at, another, at another time. But uh, these are the reasons. So I'm, I'm mentioning things so that you can see that these are the reasons that, that there was this great deal of, of grief and sadness on Isaiah's part as he describes the coming judgment on Moab. So now the Assyrian Empire, as we've been talking about the Assyrian Empire, being the ones that were going to come from the east and the northeast and then sweep down across uh, the northern parts of uh, of Syria, first of all, going going west, going to Syria, and then coming down through the uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then eventually uh, not bypassing because they do their damage to Judah, but eventually going from Judah and and then on into uh, on into the other nations, Ammon and uh, Moab, and, and so forth. So they're they're just preparing to go out and to conquer the known world with their overwhelming cruelty and their seeming invincibility by terrorizing the countries around them. Now, it has been recorded historically 
that some cities that heard that the sound of the approaching Assyrian armies would actually commit mass suicide before the armies would arrive. They, that, that's how terror, terrorizing this particular army was. That some cities, not all cities, but a few cities, you know, just realized they're just going to come and plunder us anyway, and they and they destroy, you know, they kill themselves before the army of the Assyrians would arrive. So that happened, and of course, you know, sometimes we think of of Masada, you know, the uh, that uh, uh, area down in the in the south uh, by the Dead Sea, where this was much later on, of course, during the time of the Romans, that uh, people committed suicide rather than have the Romans come and, and dominate them. Uh, but, but in any event, uh, that, that took place even in, in the time of the Assyrians. So others would just give up in the face of such a terrorizing army. Now Isaiah continued to prophesy the judgment of God, which would be coming down on the hard-heartedness and the rebelliousness of people that the Lord actually cared about, but were too stubborn to submit. You know, that wasn't just then. <laughs> That's now. You know, that the, the Lord oftentimes has to awaken people. He has to awaken them because of hard-heartedness. I think some of us in this room, I mean, you know, we're not out to say, well, this person over here, that person, or even my myself, but all of us. At some point in time, we've had a hard heart toward God. We've had some rebelliousness toward God. And God has to awaken us to that so that we can get our focus back upon Him and all because, you know, He cares about us. I mean, bottom line is when when, when He chastises us, He does so. Because he loves us. We learned this in the Old Testament, in the, in the book of Proverbs, and we learned it in the book of Hebrews, as Hebrews was, was substantiating that particular spiritual aspect of the Lord's love for us, is that the Lord chastens those that he loves. And how interesting that even here, that that ex- is extended to Moab. We don't see that. We didn't see that with Babylon. We didn't see that with Philistia. We saw that, or we see that, with Moab. Look at again the, the text that we just read. The burden against Moab, verse 1, because the, in the night are of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple and Debon, to the high places to weep. You might, if you, when you look in your maps, you'll find a place named Debon. Sometimes it's called Demon, uh, not demon, but D-I-M-O-N. And there's a play on words there in the Hebrew, but we don't have to go into that. And it has to do, you know, with, with blood and, and stuff, and we'll see that later. But it says, to the high places to weep. Uh, in other words, the he there, by the way, is really kind of the personification of all of Moab, in the person of Moab, uh, representing all the people. So he has gone up to the temple, to the high places to weep. Uh, anytime you see the word high places, what is that? That's the place where uh, pagan worship took place. That's where gods were worshipped, not the living God but other gods. So you see that this is something that was uh, having to be dealt with as well. Um, It says, Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the top of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. There wasn't a happy uh, tone at all throughout all of what was taking place. Uh, And this is, uh, remember this, we're speaking as if it was past tense. You all see that? Now, this is what you have to understand. This is a prophecy that is about to happen, but they call this the prophetic present. It is just a term to say that oftentimes when you see things mentioned of this nature, where they're talking about it in the past tense, it hasn't yet happened. Isaiah is prophesying. He's prophesying that this is going to happen to 
Moab, just as he has oftentimes used the same device to talk about the judgment that was to come upon his own people, Israel and Judah. So that's, that's why I wanted to mention that, because it's all sounding in the past tense. And there, are, and there have been critics of the scriptures that say, well, see, this was another Isaiah that actually wrote this after it happened. But the timing and the timeline doesn't work that way. That's ridiculous to think of that. He was a prophet. He was foretelling what was to come. And this is what we have to realize here. He says, on top of their houses and in their streets, everyone will wail. Heshbon and Aleelia. Aliela, I'm sorry, will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Yahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. Now, the Assyrians would strike quickly and with precision in an evening invasion, a time of quietness and the best time for a sudden and surprising hostile incursion. So it talks about the night, in the night, Ar of Moab, in the night, Kir of Moab. Uh, you can go over to Isaiah 21, verse 4, just as a, as a complimentary idea here of this night attack. Uh, here the prophet says, My heart wavered, fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Uh, night is a, is, is a time of terror, as it were. Terror, uh, Job 27, verse 20, uh, there it says, Terror is overtaken like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. So, so we get an idea that when we talk about those things, you, you get a picture and you, you, go, you can go all the way into the New Testament when it talks about the fact that we are children of the day and not of the night because, you know, in the night, you know, all these things happen, you know, the thief in the night comes and all. Of course, that'd be in the Lord in, in a sense in, in some uh, cases, but the idea here is about the terror that happens at night. And most of the cities mentioned in the first four verses, by the way, were originally part of Israel's territory when Moses and Joshua defeated Sihon and the Amorites. Now the cities north of the Arnon River, when you look at your maps, you'll find a little little tributary out of the Dead Sea going east, and that's the Arnon River. Uh, Ones belong to the tribe of Reuben. Again, if you look at the tribes, uh, the map of the tribes and the conquest of Canaan, as it were, you'll find there this uh, region right to the east of the Dead Sea, the northern part of the Dead Sea, and you'll see the the area that says Reuben, and you'll see some of these cities that were mentioned there. Uh, But in later years, the Moabites actually moved the Israelites out of those regions with great persistence. So Ar and Kir, or Kir Hadaset, are said to have been laid waste and brought to silence. In other words, they were destroyed and would be destroyed completely. Would be, in other words, from the prophecy given, were destroyed in actuality uh, because of the prophecy. Now in verse 2, we're given a picture of a man. And I already mentioned this. This man, Moab, as it were, fleeing the destruction of his city and then running to his temple and to his heathen gods for protection and to lament. In other words, to weep and to wail and to cry. Now it is interesting that the Moabite god Chemosh was worshipped on Mount Nebo. And, and again, you'll find another name that's mentioned, the, the city of Nebo, which was at the foot of Mount Nebo, uh, just beyond the city of Nebo that is mentioned. Nebo, Mount Nebo has uh, been uh, mentioned as the place where Moses went and, and, and died or was, you know, was, was taken there uh, into that region. 
And the shaving, uh, it mentions the shaving of the hair and the beards was, was a great sign of, of mourning and humiliation, uh, along with a sackcloth, you know. So we've seen all of these particular signs of what was going on. And this was overall for all the people, you see. The, uh, they just easily would put on sackcloth over their bare skin. And think of that. Sackcloth, uh, you know, sometimes you see those sack of chilies or sack of potatoes, you know, that just, uh, that's kind of sackcloth. This was even worse. It was itchier and a little you know, more prickly and all. So you were wearing this over bare skin as a part of just the, the realization that something bad was happening, you see. And, and so their beards themselves were all cut off <clears throat> because of the slaughter that has come upon the inhabitants of Moab, the howling over the destruction. So this isn't a happy, a happy prophecy. Well, no major prophecies are real happy, you know. Uh, this is the reality of the scriptures, you see. Um, getting back to this picture of, of Moab going to their gods to pray for help and protection or, or, or whatever, false worship won't help. Uh, we, need to, we need to bring that to the forefront here, that false worship won't help us, won't help anyone. I say us, we're not, hopefully we're not worshiping falsely, we're worshiping the true God, we're worshiping the living God. So we're, we're okay <laughs> from that standpoint. But if we're worshiping anybody else other than, than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if we're worshiping anybody other than the living God, if we're worshiping anybody other than the Godhead, which is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, as one, if we're worshiping any other gods, you know, then we have to, we have to come to the realization that worshiping those, those uh, false gods just won't help. Because you can chant, you can weep, you can sacrifice as much as they want. I mean, they did that. They were crying out, yelling, screaming. Sometimes, you know, it brings to mind, you know, the prophets of Baal that, uh, you know, Elijah had to deal with there on Mount Carmel. And, and you know, they, they were yelling and screaming and cutting themselves. And, and, and you know, Elijah's looking at them like, hey, you know, is your God deaf or what? You know, because they would just yell and scream and, and all. But, but, you know, Chemosh wouldn't help them. And, and, you know, when you, when you look in, into the, the, uh, the gods that were worshipped in that region, Chemosh, you know, kind of, kind of coincides with Molech, and you think of the, the babies that were offered in sacrifices. You know, it was an awful, awful thing. So they were doing all of these things to try to get uh, their gods' attention, but false worship doesn't help, folks. You have to come to the true and living God. You have to come to the true and living God through Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. So they were seeking the wrong God. The weeping, as, as seen in verse 4, would, would really be an intense weeping. I mean, from, from listen to this, <clears throat> from Heshbon to Yahaz is about 15 miles. So when, when trying to measure out this whole thing, and you're thinking that they wailed and, and to the point that everybody could hear that this was going on, it's pretty loud, 15 miles. And the army was weeping. The army was weeping because they wouldn't be able to stop the invasion. I'm talking about the Moabite army. They were weeping. They, they couldn't do anything about this invasion of the Assyrians. And Jeremiah gives us the reason for this judgment. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 48. As a matter of fact, when you get an opportunity, read Jeremiah 48, the whole chapter. It's a long one. And it also deals with the burden or the, or the, or the prophecy against Moab. And uh, understand this. Isaiah wrote uh, anywhere from about 80 years before uh, uh, Jeremiah came into into play as a prophet, you see. So, you know, Jeremiah, uh, I should say Isaiah had these prophecies about um, 
Moab, Jeremiah also mentions it as well later on. Uh, Jeremiah 48 verse 11 says, Moab has been at ease from his youth. This is very important. Notice the language. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs. You know what dregs are? Dregs, well, today uh, we, we, don't, we don't look in, in, in terms of, 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 in those days, you know, they drank wine. That's, that's they made their own wine. And, and, and the dregs were actually the, the, you know, the refuse of the wine that would settle at the bottom of the bottles, you know. Nobody wanted that, you know. You just wanted the stuff that was at the top. And, and for us today, you know, it's, uh, when we think of dregs, we think of coffee dregs, you know. Uh, isn't that wonderful when you don't have a good filter on your coffee pot? And, and then you, you go like this, and you got all black kind of stuff. You know, those are those are the dregs. You know, I used to te- I used to teach at a school about 25 years ago, a long time ago. But I used to teach at a school, and they would they actually had a sign right over the the uh, the water fountain, and, and, and you know, the sign would say, "Teachers, please do not empty your dregs in the water fountain." You know, and you could see all this black stuff there. And I said, nobody looks at these signs. They're teachers. I mean, you know, <laughs> teachers don't pay attention. <laughs> Designs? Well, they should have. It was ugly. Okay. Anyway, so it says he has settled on his dregs. He settled on this, you know, refuse, this, this, this stuff at the bottom that's no good. I mean, it's, you don't want that stuff. And, and has not been emptied or poured out from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Kind of figurative language here. This is the danger of being at ease and settling for the dregs. Being at ease, not settling for the good things that God has promised to give us, the good things that God has already provided for us. And then standing up and and, and not only giving thanks for those things, but actually living out our lives in thanksgiving, pouring ourselves out unto God for the great things that He's done for us. Not for salvation. If we've come to know Jesus Christ, we are saved not by works, we're saved by faith, we're saved by, you know, having received Christ. And, and now the works will, will blossom out of that. But, but the fact of the matter is, some people just think that they just can be at ease, they settle for the dregs, they're never poured out from vessel to vessel, and in effect, they have never been refined. They're not growing in the love of Christ. They're not growing in the love of God's Word. They're not growing in, in, in maturity. When, when, trials and, when trials and troubles happen, oh man, they just they freak out and they, they, they're looking for answers everywhere. But you know what? If you're strong in God, if you have, have, have poured yourself out unto the Lord, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is God will take, refine you. You know, He wants to refine us. There's a, there's a purity that, that comes to us when we're refined in the fire of God's love, in the fire of God's discipline, in the fire. You know, we talked about that discipline, that He only disciplines those that He loves. And, and, and so there's this beauty that comes out of that. You know, you take, uh, you take ore, you know, and, and, and the rock and stuff, and you, you melt that down, and, and uh, you know, the ones that are looking for gold or silver or whatever, they, you know, they melt all this stuff down, and, and all, the, all the ugly stuff, you know, the... Uh, will rise and then you just scoop that all up and what's left is, is the pure gold or the pure silver. And, and uh, this is an aspect of brokenness. We talked about brokenness this last weekend. Being poured out for the sake of refining that we may not be considered stagnant in our faith. 
Another way of putting it is, the, is using the word complacent. There, there are too many complacent Christians just sitting back at ease, you know, expecting everybody else to do things. But listen, if you, lo- if you love Jesus, you know, your heart has to be stirred up. And, you know, there, uh, you could take the, the person of Timothy, for example. Timothy was, was a person that was stirred up for the Lord when he started as a young man. Uh, and Paul used Timothy to actually start a church in Ephesus and become the pastor of that church. But years later, at, at the, toward the end of Paul's life, he writes Timothy again, the second letter, to, you know, to have to encourage a very discouraged Timothy. We can all get discouraged almost to the point of, you know, we, we live in a certain ease, but that ease is reflective of a fear. And Paul said to Timothy... Uh, God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. And, and then he says, you know what, well, listen, and he goes into all these things about being a soldier and a farmer and all these other things. You know, and we have to understand you know, that those, those people do things. You know, they don't just sit back. They're not stagnant. And, and we can't let our, our faith get stagnant, especially in the days and times that we, in which we live, because we know that Jesus is coming soon. And we're going to be talking a lot about that in the in days to come. By the way, you know, uh, we just finished the, the Gospel of Luke, you know, on, on Sunday mornings, four years to go through the Gospel of Luke. I'm taking a little break from that. So, you know, we're going to get into the holidays soon, and then after the new year, we're going to get into a new book and all. But, but the, the fact of the matter is, there's going to be a lot to talk about about these last days in which we're living in and, and, and have it coincide really with looking at the first coming of Jesus because the second coming of Jesus is, is imminent and is coming, you know. So we, we have to be ready for that. But, but I'm, I'm saying all of that because uh, we, we need to realize we just can't sit back and let our faith get stagnant. We've got to get up and we've got to be active in the, in the love of Christ. Take, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. <laughs> Some of us are going, oh, man, oh, gee. <laughs> wow, oh, Lord, why did why'd you bring that one up? Uh, just today I was having fun complaining. But anyway, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that you may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, look at verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out. You see that? If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is saying, man, I'm being poured out for you. And you need to pour out yourself for the Lord and for the love of Christ and for the love of your brethren and for the love of the lost being poured out, you see. Okay, well, we could, you know, look through your concordances and find a lot of mention of being poured out, and you'll see a lot of verses. But in the next section of our text, and we've got to get right into this, you know why I'm talking fast? It's not because I had any Red Bull today or had too much coffee. That's not it. <laughs> i got two chapters that I want to finish, okay, so that's why I'm doing this. All right, I hope you're staying up with me. I'm not keeping you awake. If not, I'll throw some at you. All right, all right, here we go. Nothing hard. Okay. In the next section of our text, then, we see the flight of the refugees from Moab. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. Now, that, that little phrase there is kind of interesting. Uh, they connect it to Zoar as, as one of the nicknames of, 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 of Zoar. I'll, I'll explain in a moment. It says, for, the, uh, for by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up with weeping, for in the way of 
Horonayim, they will raise up a cry of destruction, for the waters of Mimrim will be desolate, desolate, for the green grass is withered away. The grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. Now, in this passage, we see the heart of Isaiah being emotionally disturbed by the distress of Moab. Now notice, the, the prophet Isaiah, the Israelite prophet, the, Jude, uh, the, the, the Jewish prophet Isaiah, being emotionally disturbed by the distress of Moab as these refugees flee from the invading Assyrians, heading south into Edom. And, and Zoar being a major city of Edom, and, and Zoar is connected to Edom. So if you see Edom, Zoar you think of, and Zoar, Edom. But this is an interesting connection. Remember I said Edom is south of Moab. So everything is moving south. Why? Because the Assyrians are coming from the north. So obvious. So this is an interesting connection here, since Zoar was the city from which Lot and his daughters escaped hiding in the mountains before that incestuous relationship which produced the Moabites in the first place. So how interesting and how ironic. You know, the, they, they escaped um, from there, and now the Moabites are escaping to there. So that's uh, interesting. So here was a town that was labeled as a three-year-old heifer, indicating to some degree uh, that it had never been, as, as one commentator put it, under the yoke of strangers. And so all of a sudden, all these strangers are coming into this particular area. There's some other views of, of what that three-year-old heifer means, but it's not all that uh, important. It's you know, just conjecture. But here come all these strangers weeping. Not only because of the destruction from the invading armies, but because they are in the middle of a drought and famine as well. The beautiful plains of Moab, which, were, which at one time were wonderful grazing land, are now under God's judgment. The green grass has withered away. With all their possessions in hand, they moved to the brook of the willows, which was further south, searching for a water supply since Moab's were dried up. And so the city cries, uh, is, uh, I should say, the, uh, and, and so the cries actually were growing. The cries were growing. Famine, lack of water. And look at verses 8 and 9. It says, For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim and it's wailing to Beer Elim. For the waters of Demon will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Demon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. So their pain now in the midst of judgment is apparent to all. In other words, all around the borders. Their pain, the pain of these refugees of Moab, is apparent to everyone. And everyone who resided around the borders of Moab would see God's judgment against them. And there was no escaping this judgment. Here it, says, it, says, it tells us the waters of Demon, which was a town on the river Arnon, were actually red with blood because there would be so many slain. But the bloodshed would not, the bloodshed would not be over. More terror was to come. If the judgment of the night strike didn't complete the work of judgment in Moab, the Lord would send lions upon those attempting to escape. God would finish His work of judgment. That is what verses 8 and 9 are representing for us. But before we go on, we need to look once again at the heart of the prophet Isaiah, who said, my heart will cry out for Isaiah. I'm sorry, for Moab. 
One translation puts it this way. It says, my heart weeps for Moab. Any of you have that translation? My heart weeps for Moab. It, it, oh, you don't have it? Okay, good. Well, good, because I don't like that translation anyway. But, that, but, that's a, but that's a good translation of that particular verse, that it says, my heart weeps for Moab. Moab is an enemy, in essence, to Israel, you see. My heart weeps. It has been said, folks, listen carefully, it has been said that ministers in denouncing the wrath of God against sinners should do it with tender sorrow, not with exultation. It should be done with great sorrow because we should have a heart for the lost. We should have a heart for the lost, a compassion for the lost. You know, there are some people who like to talk and preach about God's judgment. And the problem isn't that they're talking about judgment because we all need to be reminding people that God's judgments are real and they're coming. And that's what Isaiah was doing. But there are those who get a kind of a perverse pleasure in yelling at sinners and telling them that they're going to hell. I hate to see that. I, re- I really do. There's, there's some things I abhor in this life. And that's one of them. I see Christians carrying signs and banners and telling people that they're going to hell. Now, the reality is we know that if people do not turn their lives to Christ, that that will happen. But it's the, the vindictiveness in which they do it, the hatred in which they do it. It doesn't represent Christ to me. And I can tell you this, it doesn't represent me or you. If you love Jesus and you love the heart of the lost, it doesn't represent us. Yet the world will look at everybody in the church and say, that's what all, all Christians are like. But far, far be it that we would ever turn that way ourselves. Can the lost tell you let me ask you this way. Can the lost tell that you care for them? That's the question we need to ask. Can the lost tell that we care for them and that we care for their eternal destiny? Let's not forget that Jesus was a friend of sinners who showed great compassion for them and for us. I mean, when, when, I, read the, when I read the Gospels and see how Jesus loved the sinner, I see him loving me. I see him loving you. In Matthew 9, verse 10, it says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, those sinners were were mostly prostitutes. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He says, learn what this means. I desire mercy. That's God speaking. You know what Jesus was saying? That's what I desire. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What did did David say in his great psalm of repentance? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, thou wilt not despise. If if all you wanted was sacrifice, I'd give it. If all you wanted was the blood of bulls and goats, man, I'd I'd go around looking for everyone I could find. Go down to Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Where Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Who were the wise at that time? 
the ones who were judging? Are the ones who would look to Christ as their only hope? So you see, Isaiah crying out, weeping for Moab. It's, it's quite significant here. In the next chapter, counsel is now given to Moab to seek protection from Israel. We made it to chapter 16, by the way. And I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm, I might even get faster. No, I'm just kidding. I won't. Isaiah 16 now. They're given counsel to seek protection from Israel. It says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of, Ar- of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now let's make some sense out of this. In the midst of the devastation coming on Moab, protection was to be found in Judah. Protection was to be found in Israel, in particular in Judah, more particularly in Jerusalem, in Zion. Now, that, that, uh, that speaks volumes to what Israel was called to be. Israel, in Scripture, was called to be a light to the nations. So remember that. But it was a common thing for one country to tribute uh, to another country, to give tribute to offer tribute to another country, or actually to pay, I should say to pay tribute to another country. It was a way of forming an alliance, but it also kept the stronger country from invading the weaker one. So smaller countries didn't mind you know, paying tribute if it kept them safe from the larger country. And there was a time when David had the Moabites pay tribute to him. Listen in Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 2. Then he defeated Moab... Forcing them down to the ground, he measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So that that was something they did, you see. Uh, Later on, the Moabites were paying as much as 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams to Ahab of the northern kingdom, though they later rebelled and refused to pay at the death of Ahab. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we see that in verses 4 and 5. It says, Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So they didn't want to pay tribute anymore. By the way, when you think about the payment of tribute, you know, 100,000 rams and lambs, and uh, aren't you glad that you have little money now? Because... You know, carry around all that cattle and stuff. Anyway, the Moabs would have, would have fled as far as south as Selah. Now, this is important for you to understand prophetically. They, they fled as far south as Selah, which is actually called Petra now. This is important. It is the rock city, one of the capitals of the Edomites. Petra comes into play when? In the far fulfillment. I'll talk about that in a moment. 
It is some 50 miles south of Moab's southern border, so it's, it's quite a ways into Edom. And if they had really wanted to be safe, they would have joined themselves to the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem. But Isaiah suggested this simply because he had already prophesied that Jerusalem would be spared from destruction by Assyria. If you remember our study in Isaiah chapter 10, they would be spared and Jerusalem would be spared. So this is why Isaiah is suggesting this. And the Moabites were already like a lost flock of birds that were kicked out of their nests. That's, that's the picture that we're being given here. And so in verse 3, Judah is counseled then to be a place of refuge and protection for Moab under judgment. Now, if you have any modern translations, you don't see that. It's not real clear. The modern translations have kind of tried to add this or make, make it sound, you know, make it make sense a little bit. The King James and the New King James, though, have really a more literal sense of what is being said here. And you have to understand this, okay, in light of, of what's being done. First of all, when, when you... When you think about it, that is what the church is to be when people are under the burden of judgment. We are to be a place of refuge. We are to be a place of protection uh, for people. A place to hide the outcasts. A place to receive those who escape and never to betray them. We are to bring them to the love of Christ, you see. Listen to what is, uh, what is given to us in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The prophecy is this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's a beautiful statement. And Jesus actually uh, prophesizes of himself in his first coming when he says in Luke 4, 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So that is the what is given to us then up to verse three there that Israel is is being told literally you take care of these refugees if they come to you but in verses four and five of our text now back in in chapter 16 of Isaiah there is this abrupt and a very interesting change in the focus because now Moab is asked to receive the outcasts of Judah this is, this is what's happening here, see? Somehow, you know, the, the modern translators are saying, well, we have to make this sound right because it doesn't sound right. To, in, in one sense, it sounds like Israel's being told to take care of them, but now Moab is, telling, is being told to take care of Israel. Listen, pay attention. Moab is asked to receive the outcasts of Judah. Like I said, these modern translations would have Moab calling out to Jerusalem in verse 3 to help shelter some of the Moabite refugees. But this brings us back to the understanding of near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Uh, verse 3 is the near fulfillment, and verses 4 and 5 indicate a far fulfillment. In other words, an end times prophecy of how Moab will be a place of refuge for Jews escaping the fury of Antichrist after the abomination of desolation. And when we follow through in those New Testament passages, we find that one place that they go is to Petra, Selah, in the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, very quickly here. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. This is speaking of Israel. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God 
that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This is, a spoken, this is spoken as if it's already happened. What, what do we call that? Prophetic present. The prophetic present. That the woman fled into the wilderness. In verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 12 says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who's that? Israel giving birth to whom? Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and time, half a time, of course, three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. And, you know, we, we, that's one of the things we're going to kind of look at in, in, in the near future ourselves. So in one sense, then, the far fulfillment. Notice this. These are mentioned in our text. The spoiler, the extortioner, and the oppressor. In the far fulfillment would obviously be whom? It would obviously be Antichrist. But in the near fulfillment, Isaiah may be calling the Moabites these things and announcing that the nation was to be destroyed due to the fact that they wanted Judah's help, but not Judah's God. They would take Judah's help, but they would not take Judah's God. And what do we find them doing? Going up to their high places to do what? To cry and to wail and to ask for protection from their gods, but not the God of Israel. And so Isaiah 16 verse 5 says, In mercy the throne will be established. Listen and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Giving them total opportunity to see that this was the place to come. Why? Because the king would be there. And who would that king be? It's talking about Messiah. Because in the end times, the far fulfillment, Messiah's throne will be established. And he himself will sit in the throne or on the throne in truth justice and righteousness. Psalm 89 verses 14 and 15. I'm going to give you these things fast, but, but uh, just, just write the references and look them up. Psalm 89 verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Psalm 97 verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. But then listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But to the Son, He says, to whom? The Son. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hate lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Speaking of Jesus, that Jesus will be the king, Messiah, who will be on the throne in Jerusalem, in Zion. Will they go? Will the Moabites go? Well, the last section of this chapter deals with the pride, wrath, and the lying that are the ruin of Moab. Verses 6 through 8 says, We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail. For the foundations of Kir Hareset you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Who could probably understand the pride uh, of a city like Babylon? 
Who could probably, I mean, we could probably, I should say, we could probably understand the pride of a city like Babylon. We talked about Babylon a little bit, the glorious, you know, city of Babylon. But what did Moab have to boast about? Anybody know of anything that Moab had to boast about? This is the only place, listen, this is the only place that the sin of Moab is given to us in detail. The sin of Moab. It is interesting that their sin was pride. Being a small and insignificant nation, nonetheless, they were prideful people. Jeremiah points this out almost word for word with Isaiah in Jeremiah 48, verses 29 and 30, when he says, We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud. Sounds just like Isaiah, what we just read. Of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it is not right. His lies have made nothing right. Their pride kept them from submitting to Judah. And this would eventually lead to their defeat. You see, their pride kept them from going to Jerusalem. They hated Israel that much. They're going. They're getting beaten. They're getting destroyed. They're getting wiped out. We're not going. You see the picture? You see what pride does? All their boasting would turn into funeral dirges. I mean, that's all the cries were, funeral dirges. And their land would become like a trampled down vineyard in an unharvested fruitful field. And these are the consequences of pride. Haddon Haddon Robinson uh, tells a story of a young woman who went to her pastor. And she said to her pastor, Pastor, I have a besetting sin and I want your help. I come to church on Sunday and can't help thinking I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I know I ought not to think that, but I can't help it. I want you to help me with it. And the pastor replied, Mary, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. (laughs) Pride can get you. I'm glad you're still here. (laughs) It's pride that makes you think you're the best. It's pride that makes you think you're the cutest and the the most beautiful, you know. Most handsome, the smartest. It's pride that makes you think you're the best. But it's pride that makes you think you don't need anybody's help. And there are too many prideful Christians sometimes in that area. Don't need anybody's help. Don't need to do this. I don't need need that. I'm, I'm doing myself. That's pride. And it affects believers in Jesus Christ. The Moabites didn't think they needed help, especially from Judah. And so God used the lords of the nations to break them down and destroy everything they took pride in. Someone once said, whenever pride is not broken by humility, it will have to be broken by justice. Wise words. Verses 9 through 11 now in Isaiah 16. Therefore I will bewail the vine of Sibma with a weeping of Jazer or Yazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliela, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. And therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Harris. By the way, verse 11 there, that's that's Isaiah again crying out in pain. 
toward Moab. And once again, cities and towns are mentioned from the region of Moab, but it is the displeasure and the sadness of Isaiah that stands out in this passage. You know, it's just talking about the, the, the fruitfulness that they had in the land at one time, but now that's all gone. That's what all of these things are, are, are saying. But it is not just the, the prophet's grief, folks. Listen carefully. It is not just the prophet's grief, but the Lord's grief that is expressed over the destruction of Moab. Please understand. Ezekiel 33, verse 11 God says, say to them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? That's speaking to his own people. But it's speaking also to anyone who has turned their face from from the the God that created them. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it. And it displease him and he turn away his wrath from it. Look at the mercy of God in that. Verse 12 teaches us that not all roads lead to God. This is another truth that we have to go over once again in verse 12 it says and it shall come to pass when it is seen that moab is weary on the high place that he will come to his sanctuary to pray but he will not prevail he will come to his sanctuary to pray which is his high places but they won't prevail it's 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 useless worthless lastly a prophetic timetable is given for us in 13 and 14 this is the word This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Now the judgment that will come in the time will be, the judgment that will come in that time will humble Moab. And being that it is nearly impossible to verify the time frame in accordance with a date, uh, the prophecy is used to inform that the judgment was coming real soon. Could have happened during the time of Hezekiah. Some people people believe that's when when it happened and all. But measuring those three years, as it were, is is very hard as far as the, the time frame is concerned. We can trust it because it's God's word and we can know that. But it would only allow a remnant to survive. And and this is what we need to see here at the end. It would only allow a remnant to survive, but by Jeremiah's time, which is Jeremiah 48, as uh, I asked you to read that, the, the Moabites would be back to full strength and fully back to their wicked ways, again, ready for judgment. And then, of course, the prophecy of judgment will come fully to pass in the near fulfillment. But do not disregard the far fulfillment which is yet to come. And the very fact that Petra and Selah, even though that is in the region of Edom or near to Edom, this is where they have gone. This is where they're going. This is all significant in, in God's plan. So the prophecies do end up lining themselves up as God has purposed. It is hard for them to do. But then again, God knows 
God knows the beginning from the end. And um, where there is God's sovereignty, there is, always, there is also man's responsibility. Our responsibility to look to Christ. Our responsibility to look to the Lord. To look to His truth. To trust the Lord with all of our heart. And not to lean upon our own understanding. To, to, to just establish ourselves in, in the love and the grace and the mercy and the truth of the Lord. So that the Lord Himself will establish us in Him. Well, as strange as it is, we did two chapters tonight. Let's pray.